I've picked up some insights from a couple of discussions with the rabbi of the Messianic Synagogue in Coolsdon, which you may or may not know even existed in, in Coolsdon there. And I've also taken quite a number of courses by a group called the Israel Bible Center. And their aim is to help Christians discover the Jewish background and culture of their faith. And one aspect of of the studies that has really gripped me is about when we read the Bible, looking a lot more at the historical context, the geographical context, issues with translation, considerations, options for how you make a translation. And then when you've done the translation, some different interpretations that are helped by Jewish and Hebraic insights. And with all of that, there can sometimes be, and often is, a fresh and deeper understanding of that part of the Bible. And sometimes, actually, a very different understanding from what we've been brought up with and taught. And part of that was illustrated a few weeks back, with those of you who who listened to Brian talk on the introduction to 1 Corinthians 13 where he talked about the gongs and the clashing cymbals. Never heard that before. And in some of the cases, I've, I've received insights on passages that I've, I've had questions about the meaning for, for years. So for me, it's really been fresh revelation from, from God's Word and, and also led to some challenging questions for my Christian life today. Now, all, all of that was, was happening to me over those last months. And then just before Easter, I was minding my own business, reflecting on some of these insights over breakfast one day. And I had a really clear prompt that I felt was from the Lord. And it was, offer it as a talk at Pentecost. Uh, wow, okay. I'm not really sure where we go with that. But in a few days after that, I offered it to Neil and he said, yes, that, so that's why I'm here. It's an interlude to 1 Corinthians 13, but that's, that's what happened. So I want to try and convey some of the excitement coming to me from these new insights, hopefully encourage some of you at least to do your own studying and looking and reading along these lines. And I also want to give some general historical and geographical context. So Jim's comment about traveling in space and time, we're going to do a little bit of that. Historical and geographical context that will be generally useful to you when you read the Gospels, and I'm hoping you'll go back and and do some of that and, and pick up things that I've said this morning. And then I want to give three brief examples of deeper or different meaning that have arisen from looking particularly at the historical geographical context and and the Jewish heritage for two reasons, so we understand better, but also to be challenged today in in our Christian lives. So those three insights are to ask, why was what the Magi, or who we often get called the wise men, why was what they said to Herod so provocative? Then I want to ask, what was the significance of Caesarea Philippi? And then thirdly, 
bringing us to why we're celebrating Pentecost today. Where were the disciples when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost? So hopefully everybody will learn something. Hopefully you'll be challenged by the questions. And I'm going to put up a list of resources at the end. So if any of you do want to follow what I've been doing, then then you'll be able to do that. So firstly, let's jump into a little map for geography. So we live way up to the top left. This is the eastern end of the Mediterranean, modern-day Turkey, Egypt obviously labelled there just to get you oriented. And this was a map in around about 1000 BC, just a few of the important cities that were there then. And at the end of the eastern end of the Mediterranean, between the Mediterranean and this massive desert, the Syro-Arabian Desert, is a strip of land that got called the Levant. The sea and the desert were difficult to cross, so a lot of stuff happens in that strip of land. It's a connection between Egypt and the North African coast and Anatolia and Mesopotamia. So this is our our strip of land. So much happens through that strip of land. There's a concentration of trade routes going through it. It's where people migrated. They couldn't go into the desert. It was tough to go on the sea. Movements of invading armies. The influence of the Egyptians coming up from the south... And then from Mesopotamia, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians all came down from the north. And of course, there's a whole lot of Bible history that happens in that little strip. And there's the arrow here just giving an indication of where Jerusalem is. The next map is based on the same geographical area. We've just zoomed out a little bit. And it shows the extent of the Greek, or as it was originally, the Macedonian Empire that Alexander the Great expanded from 330 BC onwards. Now, a couple of asides here. We'll come back to one of these later. Many Greeks believed that Alexander was a son of the gods. And secondly, the Old Testament had all been written by this time, And the Old Testament mentioned all the guys I talked about before, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians. Historically, they mentioned in the Old Testament. And in Daniel, we also have a prophetic view of Greece, the Greek Empire, the the prince of Greece. And you can see that the the shaded, colored areas are the extent of the empire. So it went right the way through our area of interest. This map is for 275 BC, and that empire lasted another couple of hundred years, slightly over, right the way through into the sort of 50, 60 BC. In 167 BC, there was a Jewish revolt led by guys called the Maccabeans, because the temple in Jerusalem had been grossly defiled by a a Greek ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. 
And that led to the establishment of a a Jewish-run kingdom within the overall Greek empire. And that kingdom, that was called Hasmonean, lasted for about 130 years, so 167 to 37 BC. We're going to look in a bit more detail on the next map at that kingdom, but as the Greek empire gradually declined and fell over that time period, we had Romans coming in from the west, and these guys called the Parthians coming from the east. Didn't know you were going to get a geography lesson this morning, did you? So now we've zoomed right into the bottom half of our strip of land, and this was the extent of the Hasmonean Jewish kingdom. It started in Judea, which is just this block here, and expanded up to this level. Judea includes Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bethany, Emmaus, so that's Judea. It's a bit tough to see, so I've put these ones on the side. Galilee up here includes Nazareth, Capernaum, Magdala. Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. I hadn't really got that in my head before, but Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. And the distance between Jerusalem, which is here, and the Sea of Galilee up here is about 90 miles along the road. And the last point at the minute, Idumea down the bottom here, it had become part of the Jewish kingdom because they took it over, but it was actually Edomites. Roman word for Edom was Idumea. And those were forcibly converted to become Jewish by this expanding kingdom. And you can see a few of the other place name, Sea of Galilee. If you read some of the versions of the Bible, Decapolis is mentioned beyond the Jordan or Perea. Now that Jewish kingdom sadly eventually fell into civil war and was also under threat from the Parthians. Both of the sides in the civil war tried to get Rome to help them, endorse them. And Rome said, oh, okay, we're glad to come and help, but actually what we're going to do is we'll take over. You're not in charge anymore. We will take over this area, and we're going to appoint somebody else to govern you. And they appointed a guy called Antipater in 47 BC. But they did allow them to keep their high priest. And now we're getting to some names that I think you you will remember. So Antipater handed on the role to his sons. And the one who took the north was called Herod. Anybody heard of Herod? Yeah, okay. The south was taken by another of his sons called Phazael. Anybody heard of Phazael? Gary has, all right. (laughs) That's very good. He's been doing some learning. Phaziel didn't last long because actually the Parthians took him out. They tricked him and and killed him. So Herod took over this whole area. The Parthians were really threatening, so Herod went back to Rome and said, I need two things. 
I want a whole load of troops, please, because I need to defend this, this area for you. And I also want a title. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Water down the wrong way. <coughs> I also need a title to help me govern these people. <coughs> dear, dear. What title do you think the Romans allowed him to take? King of Judea, also known as King of the Jews. So in 37 BC, <clears throat> Herod is called King of the Jews. So that gives us a real quick run through historical and geographical context as we get to the time of the Lord Jesus. And it's pretty quick. I'm glad you can now go back to YouTube and, and re-watch. So let's get into the first example. That must have been taken off their Facebook page, the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Or another translation says, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod saw this, heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So, King Herod's there for 30-odd years. He's been king of the Jews. And out of the blue, from his perspective, a number of these magi, not quite sure where, what they were or where they were from, but possibly they were even Parthian from the east, turn up and they ask, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? That helped me understand a lot better why Herod felt threatened, because he was the one who had been given the title by external forces. But the one born as king has obviously got a much greater claim than the one appointed by outsiders. Now, it doesn't excuse his response. He could have accepted the wonderful and amazing revelation that there was a king in Jerusalem, he could have accepted that in humility and gone to worship. But the record says otherwise. He saw the Lord Jesus as a, as a threat. Now, I was amazed in going through that and all how the facets of history came together in the story, how Herod came to be the king, the timing and location of the Lord's birth. How did the Magi know what really know what was happening? And then how were they warned in a dream afterwards not to go back to Herod? But God in his purposes and wisdom chose to provoke Herod in that, that way. And, and that led me to a provoking question for me and, and one that I, I pass on, on to you today. What if God wants to reveal something to us today that's wonderful and amazing, but it interrupts our way of life and what we were expecting for the future. That's what happened to Herod. 
And let's be provoked to consider how we might react to that. And, and my prayer for me and for all of us, let our reactions be the opposite to Herod. God, help us to be humble, to worship, to ask good questions if we need to, to be like Mary was, who said, may it happen to me as you have said. Let's look at, at the next bit. That's the first example. The next bit of historical and geographical context. I'm going to use the same map that we had before, but the annotations have changed. So Herod, by the time the Lord was born, he'd become known as Herod the Great. And he died in about 4 BC after Joseph had taken Mary and Joseph to Egypt. Now, it's an oddity of our year system that the Lord was probably born somewhere in the region of 6 to 4 BC. That's just the way the the counting got slightly off. So when Herod died, his son Archelaus took over this region here, Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. He was a horrendous ruler And he got quickly replaced by the Romans with a Roman governor. So here's a question for you. Who was the Roman governor late in the Lord's life? Pontius Pilate, Pilate, yes. Okay, so that's... And Archelaus is mentioned when the Lord was brought back from Egypt by Joseph and Mary. Another son, Herod Antipas took over Galilee, which is this block here and this block here. And he became known in the future, he became known as Herod. So you'll see biblical references to Herod after you thought Herod had died. Well, Herod the Great died, and then it was Herod Antipas, up these two. And yet another son, Herod Philip, a bit tough to see, but he's up here, took over Gaulonitis, which I'd never heard of, but that's the region up to the top right there. And he became known as Philip. So in, in Matthew chapter 14, some of you will remember the story where Herod ran off with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Well, that's those two guys who were ruling the bits up there. Now we're going to zoom into Galilee which is where Jesus spent most of his time. And there's some familiar names we've got. Oh, didn't mean to do that just yet. Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazim, Cana, all in that Galilee region. Now, on one occasion, the Lord went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, out of Galilee and in Gaulonitis. And it was here that he asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now we can read it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. Or putting an emphasis in the English that isn't, it's not quite there in the English, but is more there in the Greek. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed to you, Simon, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Why was it significant that they were near Caesarea Philippi when this happened? Now, personally, I had no idea about this, and maybe one or two of you do, but I suspect quite a few do not. So this specific place is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And as we saw earlier, the the Greeks had been in this area for over 300 years And they brought their culture, their polytheistic or many gods religion with them. And before that, there'd been Canaanite, Baal-related activities and even some Israelite idolatry in the area. Now, the Greeks believed, and it's a little bit difficult to see on this slide, but there's a couple more, that the cave in the picture, which is here middle left which had a big spring flowing out of it, hence the river, they believed that cave was a gate to Hades, that it was a gateway to the underworld. That was their belief. So zooming in a little bit, and again, the cave is here. It's come out very dark, or it's, it's here. Now, there was a a temple and a sacrificial area on a large flat rock in front of the cave that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. That's why it's called Pan's Grotto. Herod Philip, the guy who was ruling that area of Gaulanitis, he decided he wanted to build a temple there to Caesar. And that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi. It's Philip's offering to Caesar in that that area, in that same place. We mentioned Alexander being viewed as a, a a god, a son of the gods, and the Romans thought the Caesars were sons of the gods. And the behavior that was associated on, on this rock area, in this temple area, the behavior associated with the, the sacrifices of the Greeks and Romans was so depraved that the rabbis said to Jews, you shouldn't actually go there. Now, we don't know how, how close the Lord went, but it's undoubtedly right that everyone knew what was going on there. So Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Son of the God speaks against both the Greek and the Roman cultures. It's, it's saying you're, you're, that's not right. You're, Jesus is over and above all of that other religious stuff. He's the son of the living God. It's a very provocative statement to those cultures 
and authorities. And the follow-up statement of, and on this rock I will build my church, which in the Greek is ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, is also a very significant challenge to those ungodly authorities. It's saying, actually, what I'm building, what the Lord is building, is going to be in charge of what comes out of the gate of Hades or what goes in, what goes through. And that raises some questions for us. Firstly, what did he mean by ecclesia? And in our translations, that's usually translated as church. But there's, there's some things to say about that, not for today, for another day. But uh, we'll hopefully get a chance to come back to that one day. And then to ask, on what rock is he building? Now, there's been some traditions. The Catholics would probably say, well, it was Peter. There's the Lord himself, our rock. Peter's declaration, which is probably what the Protestants would say. But actually, the Lord and the disciples were looking at a rock. And for me, there's an element, I think all all four, there's aspects of all four that are true. But there's a prophetic statement about the place. The imagery of building over a place previously used for evil and controlling access to and through the gates of Hades in the authority of the only Son of God. And so the question that I was challenged with going through that, and again, one for us today, is how much are we exercising the spiritual authority that we've been delegated, given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven? So take away that thought as well. And third And last for now brings us right to Pentecost. And my question, where were the disciples when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost? What city were they in? Jerusalem, no doubt. Where were they in more detail? Upper room. That's that's what I would have said. Now, they had been told, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high, power from on high. Just a little bit about the timing, a slight aside. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. John 21 then says they were back in Galilee. The Lord said for them to go back. And then in the 40 days between Passover and and them coming back to Jerusalem where the Lord ascended, they'd been to Galilee and come back. How far was it from Jerusalem to Galilee? 90 miles. There was no easy jet. There may just have been easy donkey, but 90 miles even on a donkey. That, and they'd been there and back. And it's, it's a long, lot of, lot of traveling. Acts 1.5 then says, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was with them for 40 more days, and the last 10 days, they were in Jerusalem waiting. And they were waiting for Pentecost, which I'll touch on in a moment. 
Certainly they had been in an upper or a guest room. Acts 1.13 confirms that. But that was probably just the apostles because it says it was where they were staying. 12, 15, few other folk could probably fit. But not the whole 120 that's referred to a little bit later in, the, in that passage. 120 disciples meeting together. And end of Luke says they were continually at the temple praising God. After the resurrection, before Pentecost, they were continually at the temple. Last aside, Herod, who we talked about, Herod the Great, had done some major building works. And one of the things he did was refurbish and significantly expand the temple. And now it was the Feast of Shavuot, which for us gets called Pentecost or sometimes the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks from Passover to Shavuot. One of the three key Jewish feasts. And good Jews would have been celebrating that in the temple. So it makes it likely, I would propose, that the disciples were in the temple with lots of other people in there too. Now, is that a possibility from the passage? It is not definitive, so you can debate it, and, and, but it's just some of the details that seem to fit a little bit better if we make an assumption So we read read the passage. We need to know that the Greek word for house is oikos. It can also be used of the house of God. So when the Lord said, my house is a house of prayer for all nations and threw the money changers out, that was that word house oikos, same as the oikos word here. So let's read the passage with that in mind. When the day of Pentecost, or Shavuot, came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Shavuot was originally a celebration of of harvest first fruits, but it was also becoming a celebration of the giving of God's instruction on Mount Sinai. So I just want to read uh, that passage. We're actually going to start at, at verse 17. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So just reimagine the scene one more time. The disciples, potentially 120 of them, sitting somewhere, potentially in the temple courts, gathered together in one place, and there's a sound from the sky, roar of a violent wind filling the place where they were sitting, and the Holy Spirit descends on them in fire. 
I think the people who were there, the good Jews, would have been amazed at the parallels with Mount Sinai. So it's not surprising then that a a crowd gathered, rushing from other parts of the temple and hearing the believers speaking in their own languages. And Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice. Some were provoked. They said, oh, it's an interruption to the feasts. How dare they? But 3,000 were saved. Now, 3,000 is a lot of folk to get round a house, so uh, potentially we are in um, something very big. There we go. Homework for some of you to read Exodus 32 about what happened when Moses came down from Sinai. Final questions for us. Remembering what the Lord said and picking up on what what Ali brought to us earlier. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So are being baptized in the Spirit and being clothed with power from on high for us today? And you go back to what Brian told us a few weeks ago. Yes, we believe in the work of the Spirit today. So the question for us is, have we been baptized in the Spirit and clothed with power from on high as much as we can be? Let's ask for more. So I know I've, I've put out a whole lot of information, some pretty big challenges. I'll put the questions up again. Let God make offers to us. Are we ready to receive? Are we, re, are we exercising the spiritual authority that we've been delegated? And have we been baptized with the Spirit and clothed with power as much as we can be? So join me in a prayer this Pentecost Sunday. Father God, will you fill us afresh today with Holy Spirit, with fire from heaven, with more revelation from your word and, and directly into our spirits. Will you baptize us in Holy Spirit and clothe us with power from on high like the first disciples were? I pray you do that for us, even if we need to wait for an opportune moment. Thank you for provoking us, even as we seek to follow your ways. Thank you for directing our paths, directing history around us. Thank you for the authority of Jesus over all things and for delegating that authority to us. Help us use that authority as we pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We worship you, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. Amen. And that's the list of resources. I'd love to chat with you about this. If you need time to respond to the challenges, please, please take them. I'm, I'm still very much processing the challenges. 
please do make the time. Talk and pray with others in life groups, perhaps. And uh, thank you so much, Jim.